Well, welcome everyone. I'm Frank Fear for Future You, and we're delighted that you're here with our guest, Professor Andrew Zimbalis of Smith College to talk about a very important subject, very timely too. We're recording this during major bowl week, college football playoffs week. It's the economics of college sports. Uh, and if any of, you's been, any of you have been paying attention, which we know you have been, there's been a massive migration in college sports, major college sports, revenue producing sports over the last 40 years or so, 30 years in particular, from an enterprise that used to be more aligned with higher education, but today because of the economics, the money in particular, more aligned with pro sports, college football and college basketball. And Professor Zimbalist is the leading sports economist in the country. Uh, and so we're very much delighted to have him here with us today. Let me say a few words about, uh, about Professor Zimbalist and then I'll turn to my co-host, Ruben Martinez and Steve Miller. They'll introduce themselves. Professor Zimbalist earned his BA at the University of Wisconsin. So like uh, Ruben and Steve and myself, uh, he's a public university graduate uh, and public schools are really in the eye of the storm with respect to the, the money issues that uh, he'll be talking about, Professor Zimbalist will be talking about. He did his master's and PhD work uh, at uh, the university, excuse me, Harvard University, not the University of Harvard, where have I been for the last uh, so many years, at Harvard University. And today he is the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College. He is a prolific author, uh, has produced almost 30 books over his career on a variety of topics. And of course, a major topic is the economic of sports. Let me just read some of the titles of those over the last 20 years or so. Unpaid Professionals, Commercialization and Conflict in Big Time College Sports, Equal Play, Title IX and Social Change, Unwinding Madness, What Went Wrong with College Sports and How to Fix It, uh, and his most recent book just published, Rutgers University in November, strongly recommend it to you, Wither College Sports, Amateurism, Athlete um, Safety, and academic integrity, the trifecta, really three very important issues. Uh, thank you, Andy, for being here today. We really appreciate uh, your spending time with us. We know how busy you are. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and before um, Andy starts his presentation, let me turn to Ruben and, and then to Steve for them to introduce themselves to you. Thank you, Frank, and good morning, Professor Zimbalist. It's a pleasure to have you on Future You Forum. Uh, this forum is about discussing uh, the influence of neoliberalism on public universities and higher education in general. And one of the areas that we have not discussed uh, with great depth is uh, collegiate sports. And we know that neoliberalism, its principles and its uh, practices have greatly impacted the, uh, the collegiate sports uh, across the country. And we are looking forward to hearing your presentation and to learning what those paths to reform uh, practically uh, are going to, uh, uh, to generate for us. So thank you for joining us today. Mm. And likewise, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Steve Miller. I'm the uh, director of the Center for Economic Analysis at Michigan State University, uh, where a lot of my interest and a lot of the interest of, I, I assume our viewers will be around the public policy aspect and where tax dollars go and, and what is the actual return from a public perspective of uh, uh, academics and, and uh, athletics in our academic uh, programs. So once again, uh, Dr. I'm sorry, Zambalist, uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward, forward to listening or hearing your presentation. Thanks very much, both of you. Uh, if you haven't read any of Andrew's work, strongly recommend it because this is a topic that uh, I think all of us need to be more knowledgeable about. We're fans certainly, but this is sort of the shadow side that is lurking uh, not too far beneath what we're seeing on TV. And one of the things that uh, Professor Zimbalis does is that he writes so elegantly about this as an academic, but also for public consumption. Uh, and one of the articles I'd recommend just published not long ago was in a sports economics uh, publication called Sportico. 
And I'd like just to read a passage of this to give you a taste of his work and then turn to Andy for his presentation. Uh, this is what he wrote. And think about how elegantly and how importantly this is stated. College athletics is based on the notion that sports provides an extracurricular activity to balance the largely sedentary and cerebral experiences of a college student and to enhance the primary educational purpose of college. Who can disagree with that? College athletes are intended to be first and foremost students. As students, they should be able to organize, to articulate and fight for their interests. And they don't need to be recognized as employees and covered by the National Labor Relations Act to do this. Turning college sports over to the marketplace. And anybody who's been paying any attention in revenue generating sports, that's what's happened, is the wrong way to go. Antitrust law may protect the consumers of college sports, but it won't protect education. Congress must uh, rise to the occasion and offer a public policy solution, Steve, that protects the educational role of higher education. So well stated. And with that, Andy, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction and welcome, Frank and Ruben and Steve. Uh, I'm happy to be with you this morning. What I'd like to do is, is to begin with a little bit of an overview of how I view the dynamics of college sports and what its major issues are. Uh, so uh, as many of, many of you know, the NCAA is comprised of approximately 1,100 schools, and it's divided into three divisions. Uh, the, the top division, Division One, is the, is the division uh, and has 350 athletic programs in it. It's the division that's uh, most commercialized in college sports. And it itself, Division One, is, is subdivided um, into something called FBS, which is the most commercialized part of Division One, and that has 130 schools in it. Uh, and then something called FCS, which is uh, the next most commercialized uh, part. Uh, and, and finally, what's called Division One without football. Most of my remarks today will concentrate uh, on Division One and within Division One on, on FBS. Many of the lower divisions and subdivisions try to emulate what goes on in FBS. And, and so they too are affected to some degree with the issues that, that I'll be discussing. <clears throat> but let me begin by giving you a sense of what I believe is the overall economic dynamic that drives uh, the behavior of college sports. I think the first thing I would point to is that if you're running an athletic program, an athletic department, unlike even though it behaves, especially at, at the FBS level, even though it behaves uh, very much like a corporation in, in that it's so commercialized and, and generating revenue wherever it can, even though it behaves that way, it distinguishes itself by having no stockholders. Uh, unlike a typical corporation where people own shares in the corporation and they might get capital gains if the price of the stock goes up and they might get dividends if the corporation is, is uh, having substantial profits, uh, a college athletic department doesn't have stockholders. Stockholders want to see profits in the company and they pressure the board of directors and the board of directors pressures the, the executives to generate profits. That dynamic doesn't take hold in college sports. Instead of having stockholders, college sports departments have stakeholders. Stakeholders being uh, the local boosters, uh, lo the local population, the student body, the, and importantly, the alums and administrators at the school. What do stakeholders want to see? They want to see victories. They don't own a share of stock in, the, in this athletic department. They're not going to make a financial gain by the success of the department, but what they want is victories. And, and so the primary force that drives decision-making and, and what motivates the athletic director within an athletic department is to generate victories. <clears throat> of course, victories are most important for the, the high exposure sports like football and men's basketball, but they're generally important throughout, throughout the program. One of the consequences of, of uh, this goal, this uh, objective function, which is to have victories <clears throat> rather, rather than uh, to have profits, 
is that whenever new revenue sources are identified, they are quickly spent on the pursuit of victories. I'll have more to say about uh, the consequences of that shortly. Another, of course, another salient characteristic of college sports these days is the suppression of player compensation. Players, uh, even, even on the commercialized teams like men's football and basketball, players can't be lured to an athletic department by the athletic department saying to, or the athletic director or coach saying to the high school athlete, come, come to Michigan State, we'll give you $2 million to play. Don't go to Michigan, they're only gonna give you $1.8 million. Now that's actually what happens in a typical labor market, right? Workers have, at least many workers, uh, have the choice of, of where to work. And to some degree, uh, especially if the workers have, have, have uh, specialized talents, to some degree, uh, their choice of where to work is governed by what the company is, is offering to pay them. That can't happen directly in college sports. And we have, of course, the recent phenomenon of NIL, name, image, and likeness income possibility uh, that is starting to push in that direction. But uh, that, that kind of compensation through NILs is indirect. It can't come directly from the university. It has to come from third parties. I'll have more, have more to say about that as well. Now, given that you cannot in college sports uh, explicitly and directly uh, recruit players by offering them more money or more income, uh, they have developed an alternative method to recruit, to recruit the best high school athletes. And one of them is to hire the most usually notorious uh, coaches in the country. Uh, and the way they, they recruit the, the, high, the most notorious coaches is by offering coaches high salaries. The, the median power five, I didn't mention power five before, but FBS itself is divided in, into two groups. One is the power five and the other is, is the group of five. The power five is within the 130 schools in FBS, the power five are the top 65 schools in terms of revenue generation. The median power five head coach last year earned over $3.5 million. Uh, so the athletic departments, instead of paying for the athletes, they pay for high, they pay to get successful and, and uh, notorious coaches with the hope that those coaches, because of their notoriety, will be able to attract the best high school players. Um, and now another thing uh, that the college athletic departments do is they invest heavily in facilities. Uh, recruit, they recruit these high school kids, they bring them to campus and they take them to the football field and they show them uh, the, the scoreboard, uh, which ha um, has, you know, millions and millions of pixels to have high definition images of the players after they make a first down. Uh, and they say, look, your, your picture will be up there on that scoreboard uh, if, you, if you come to our school. Uh, and then they show them the locker rooms where, where they'll be dressing and, and showering uh, after the games. Uh, and then they offer other kinds of athletic perks, uh, particularly most recently, uh, the Supreme Court is now uh, saying that th it's not legal to cap educational benefits uh, and schools are offering kids things like fancy, fancy automobiles and certainly uh, computers and trips abroad and so on and so forth. Uh, all that presumably fit under the rubric of, of being an educational benefit. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there's the NIL support that, that I've uh, recently referenced. And again, I'll come back and say more about that later. Now, the final uh, salient characteristic that I'd like to call your attention to is the, the financial transfer system that exists within, within college sports. <clears throat> so what is that system? It's a system whereby the athletes who, who generate the revenue by, by being excellent athletes and having success, competitive success on the court or on the field, they generate the revenue, but they don't get the revenue. Well, they get some maybe indirectly because of their scholarships that most of them have. Uh, but instead, most of the revenue that they're generating is transferred to the coaches, the, the head coaches and the assistant coaches. The head coaches and the assistant coaches recruit the players and they basically get paid the value that, that the players whom they recruit produce produce. <clears throat> so there's a transfer from the, the revenue generators to the coaches and, and also, of course, to the athletic director and, and, and conference commissioners are getting a large chunk of the revenue as well. And the other thing that's interesting, I think, about the, uh, the financial transfer system is that within, within FBS, approximately 50% of the football players and basketball players happen to be Black. 
uh, and a very, very, very small proportion of the head coaches and the athletic directors and conference commissioners are black. Most of them are white. And so you have basically a racial transfer system uh, where the, the, the generators of most of the revenue are, are black players uh, and the large compensation packages are going to white higher ups. So I think that's, that's the, the uh, economic dynamic that, uh, that's key. Let me give you some of the, the more specific uh, results. From 19, 2019, this is the last year for which we have uh, economic data from the NCAA. <clears throat> and even, even if this NCAA produced data for 20, 2020 and 2021, uh, it wouldn't be representative, obviously, because of COVID and, and the fact that, that revenues for athletic departments have, have suffered a really strong hit um, in, in the last two years. So 2019 is the last representative year. And in that year, the median program in FBS, now remember, this is the top 130 commercialized programs in the country. The median situation was a net generated revenue of a loss, a deficit of $18.8 million. The median program in FBS had a deficit, athletic program we're talking about now, had a deficit of $18.8 million. And if you go down to the next group to FCS, there was a deficit of 14.3 and a division one without football, it was 14.4. In parentheses, you can see uh, the, the range of, of those results. The, um, the, the situation within FBS is also interesting to look at. Now, remember, FBS is divided into the Power Five and Group of Five schools. Power Five are the, uh, the top 65, the Group of Five are the second tier of 65 schools. Uh, and e it's even true that within the Power Five programs, there was a median deficit of almost $7 million, and the Group of Five had a median deficit of, of $23 million. And finally, if we break FBS into quartiles or, or, or quarters, 25% groupings, we see that it's only the top quartile uh, within FBS. So this is now approximately 32 schools. Uh, the median financial result for those 30, top 32 schools was a surplus of 2.1. If you let, look at the next 32, a deficit of 11.2, and the next th uh, 32, a deficit of 25.5, and the next, the deficit of $20.9 million. Note, however, that for that first quartile, the 2.1 million surplus is a median, meaning half the schools are above it and half the schools are below it. And in fact, in the year 2019, and if you look at not only 2019, but the five years preceding that, so look at the last five years for which we have reliable data, somewhere between 20 and 25 schools report an economic surplus out of, out of the 1,100 schools in the NCA, 20 to 25 report an economic surplus in their athletic department. That figure though, even though that's what they report to the NCA, that's misleading. The situation is actually substantially worse than that because those figures do not include all of capital costs and all of indirect expenses. We can say more about that later uh, if, if there's any uh, interest in that. Now, one of the things I want to call your attention to this, that is also a salient part of the economic system here is that all of, all of these deficits are undergirded by support from the educational budget at the university. Uh, when the educational budget is, is insufficient to cover what's going on, the losses in the athletic program, then there's often state money, state, state legislatures appropriate money to support athletic programs. And typically in any given year, there's also a massive amount of federal funding. The Higher Education Act provides something like $150 billion in loans and work study money uh, to college students, and also $30 billion uh, in grants, Pell Grants. So every year it's close to $200 billion of federal money is going to support the, 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 the programs in America's universities. And a large share of that money is going to students going to student athletes. Now, I've I mentioned to you before about NILs. Um, I, I think that uh, NIL income, which by the way, became legal just this past July 1st, 
and and the, the main impetus there was a bunch of states, starting with California, started to pass legislation that said that the NCAA's prohibition on NIL income for their athletes was was an was a rest illegal restraint of trade, an illegal restraint of trade. <clears throat> and these states said you can't do that anymore. You cannot restrict athletes from getting nil income, NIL income from third parties. Now, in my mind, um, as long as the NIL income comes from third parties, and as long as it has appropriate guardrails, uh, that it's, it's a positive development. It begins to balance the scales between the, the payment that coaches and athletic directors uh, have, have been getting, and, and it begins to boost a little bit the standard of living and the income level, at least for some athletes uh, in, in, in college sports. It also begins to address some of the racial disparities that, that I also alluded to. However, uh, nil income, because it means that companies that used to support athletic programs directly by making donations to those programs or buying season's tickets on the 50 yard line uh, and calling them donations, those corporations now are gonna take some of that money that used to go directly to the athletic department and they're instead gonna give them to students, at least the students, the stars. The, and about 80% of the money so far since July 1st has been going to uh, football players, obviously men's football players. Uh, <clears throat> and so the corporations are gonna say, it's, it's, it's in our interest not to associate just with the department, but we, we should be associating with the star quarterback or the, the, the star point guard on the basketball team. Uh, and that association will give us more publicity, more good publicity than simply being a sponsor of, of the entire program. And so some of the money that used to go to the athletic departments are now gonna go to the athletes, um, the sponsorship money are gonna go to the athletes. And that's gonna take these deficits that I've been talking about and make them larger and larger. Now, the other thing that's gonna, uh, another challenge that's gonna be presented here is with regard to Title IX and gender equity. Um, It, it, it kind of depends on, on how you measure it, but many, many I, I think, very reliable studies have, have made the argument that today, now, now we're at, uh, almost 50 years since Title IX was introduced in, in 1972, that today about 90% of the programs in the NCAA do not comply with Title IX, the Title IX guidelines that have been set by the Office of Civil Rights uh, within the Department of Education. Um, and what's going to happen with these NIL uh, income flows that, that come to athletes is that the overwhelming majority of them are going to go to men. And it, it's, it's going to uh, hurt, relatively speaking, it's going to hurt the standing of women's sports. So that's another challenge that will, will emerge here. Now, one of the things that, that I would like to underscore is that 98% of all college football and men's basketball players never ever play a single game in the NBA or the NFL, over 98% of them. The, the most important thing that, that in, in my view that we can do, that universities can do, that our system can do to stop exploiting these students is to give them a real education. Many of them don't get that. They don't come adequately prepared for their college work when they're in college, they're required to spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week on their athletic activities. Usually that, uh, that time that they spend is an exhausting time. Uh, they don't have enough time to, to uh, do the work on their classes that is required. Uh, very often the athletic programs put them in, in specialized courses that are really phantom courses because there's very little serious learning uh, that goes on in those classes. Uh, and that, so that more than 98% who never go to the NBA or the NFL need to have a robust and real education because that will set them up for the rest of their lives. Um, and, and, and that's been ignored. And another thing that's been ignored is the, the health and safety of the athletes, that they do not get proper medical care. And very often the medical care that they do get, they're paying for it out of their own or their parents', uh, their parents medical, medical insurance. Uh, so yes, yes, we need to pay attention to what has been the financial exploitation of college students, but the main thing that we should be focusing on is 
that they're getting cheated out of the implicit bargain that they make. They're going to come to a school. They're going to play football for the school. They're going to play basketball for the school. Maybe they're going to play hockey for the school, whatever it is. The school in turn is supposed to provide them with a real education that will give them the resources to be successful in life, not only financially successful, but socially and, and culturally successful as well. Uh, and the athletes are not getting that. Uh, so I think we have to go back to what college sports is supposed to be about and what the college athletes are supposed to be about. And that is students. They're first and foremost students. Even the NCAA manual says that at several points, they underscore that. The relationship between the university and the student athlete should be an educator, educatee or educator student relationship. Uh, and so that's the focus that, that uh, I think we need. And that's the focus that we need Congress to adopt as, as they are now considering a myriad of different pieces of legislation to, to try to bring what has become a rather chaotic and financially deleterious situation that is getting worse, try to bring it under control. Uh, so those are the initial comments I wanted to make. I think I've gone on just a little bit longer than I intended to, but I'm happy to engage in, in a lively discussion now. I am, uh, you know, as a faculty member who has been in the classroom, I've uh, felt the pressures from athletics relative to uh, student athletes. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, you know, there's this dynamic between the faculty member who's in the classroom who gets you know, told, oh, well, this is a, uh, you know, one of our uh, athletes, star athletes and so on, and they, the student is not performing well. Uh, and I know that they get some tutorial supports and so on, but what, what are the dynamics? What would be the, the relationship that should prevail in the classroom between, a, between these athletes and instructors who often do not know the kinds of demands that are made uh, on the athletes? Uh, and I, and then and may stand firm and say, well, you know, this, they have to pass this course, you know, and, and, and that's, that's it. Uh, what are some of the dynamics there that you can <clears throat> shed some light on? All right, so a few things. <clears throat> I think before we talk about the relationship between a professor and a student, we have to talk about the, the fraudulent admission system, uh, where, whereby people are being admitted to the school who have, don't have the academic background to be successful. And so something has to be done about that. Uh, with, with regard to admission standards. Beyond that, something has to be done to remediate those kids who are brought in, who, who have the wherewithal to do it, but don't have the, the training. And so there has to be some re remediation work. So the student athletes should, if they are accepted to, um, in, into the university, the, the, at least the summer or maybe a full year before they start playing competitively, uh, they, they should be given remediation uh, benefits. <clears throat> to get their skills up to snuff. Uh, secondly, again, before the professor comes in, into play, uh, the athletic departments need to structure their activities in a way that permits students to follow whatever courses they want to follow. Um, it's, you know, it's absurd for somebody to get recruited. Um, there are good students who, who also play football and basketball. Uh, somebody gets recruited and maybe they want to be a doctor or maybe they want to be a physicist. Um, uh, or they, they want to be something that requires some, some serious, uh, serious attention to their studies and also requires that they take a variety of courses in a particular discipline. Um, and so it's absurd for the athletic department to, to go to that kid and say, hey, um, you know, we're giving you the scholarship and, and we, we need you not to major in, in pre-med because if you major in pre-med, you got to take biology and chemistry and this and that, and you're not going to be able to come to the practices. You're not going to be able to be in the weight room uh, when we need you in the weight room, and you're not going to be able to see the, the 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 film the film reviews of the game and so on and so forth. Uh, that has to stop. Uh, the, the 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 first priority has to be getting the kids engaged and interested in and involved uh, with their with their desired academic program. Uh, that should not be limited. After you've done all of those things, now you can talk about the relationship between the professor and the student. And I think there it's apparent. Uh, the student should be treated, student athletes should be treated the same way every other student is treated. Now, insofar as a student um, uh, ha has a, 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 a particular practice they have to go to that conflicts with a laboratory or they, they have to do an, an away game and the coach wants them to leave a day early from school or what, 
all of that stuff, of course, should be minimized, but there will be some conflicts. And just like there are conflicts with student athletes, excuse me, student thespians, student actors, or students who play the violin in the school orchestra, or students who are involved in student government, I like speaking individually as a professor, I like to be as accommodating as I can. But that doesn't mean at the end of the day, I say, oh, okay, you don't have to take the final, or you don't, you don't have to come to our, our seminar discussion. Uh, but so all of that has to be worked out, has to be negotiated uh, on a one-to-one -one basis, I think. Uh, that's interesting you point that out. Um, I think there's an example where a student uh, was a, an athlete, was uh, forced into another uh, program from what he really wanted. And when he got injured, he got dropped from the football program. And then halfway through a degree, that's not really worth anything to him. Um, so my, my question is, who's liable for that student in the end? Is it the university or is it the athletics program? So we, we see um, several like Penn, uh, or MSU with Larry Nasser, uh, Penn State also had a similar uh, type of liability and that came from this athletics program that then was born by the university. Uh, okay, so I, there, there are a whole slew of possibilities, it seems to me, that, that fit into this, this netherland. Um, but it, as a general proposition, <clears throat> between 1972 and 2015, the NCAA did not allow schools to give more than a one-year scholarship or year-by-year -year scholarship right. to players. And that meant that if a player um, were, was injured in, in the line of duty, um, and they were no longer useful to the basketball coach or the football coach, uh, that they could lose their scholarship. What the NCAA started to allow in 2015 was a four-year scholarship. Uh, and it, so you recruit a student, you say, we're going to give you four-year scholarship, tuition, room, board, fees, and, mm -hmm. uh, and necessary books. Uh, and as, as long as there is a four-year scholarship, I think a lot of those problems are, are obviated. Uh, okay. Somebody gets injured uh, and they can't play football, they're still a student uh, and, and they, still, they still have their scholarship. Um, so I, I think that's the right way to go. Now, the NCAA does not mandate that. They simply don't prohibit it. Right. So some schools in, and still schools in FBS don't give four-year scholarships. The ones that are the most successful and serious programs uh, do give four-year scholarships to majority of, of their, their um, student athletes. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, shedding light on all these microprocesses. Uh, as you know, I'm a sociologist, so I like the big picture, but you know, the, the, the microprocesses are very, very, very important. And as you well know, there's a lot of invisible practices that are going on here relative to the education of these athletes. Uh, and as uh, Stephen uh, correctly points out, uh, some of them get injured and can't make it, and then you know their education is not up to par. So what we have seen historically is the suppression of the student athlete role. Uh, and you, as as Frank said, you have a book that says you know what went wrong with with collegiate sports. Uh, can you speak to that? Uh, you know what went wrong? I know that Hutchins eliminated football over at the University of Chicago. He said, hey, the university is to develop minds. Uh, I'm not sure we're developing all the minds that we would like to develop, but I really would appreciate your take on this. Yeah, so, you know, like most things, um, you're, it's, it, it, this is a complicated question, and the answer is complicated. Uh, and I think that the, the evolution of, of college sports is not something, evolution to commercialization, is not something that happened overnight. It didn't happen in 1984 alone with the Supreme Court decision in, in Oklahoma v. Uh, the, um, the NCAA. Um, and it didn't, it didn't happen at any other particular point in time. In fact, if you go back to the origin of college sports, the very first uh, intercollegiate contest was a rowing contest on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire uh, between two Ivy League schools. And um, the, the, the motivation for that contest 
was that there was a new railroad had just established and they had a, a railroad line that went from New York up to Montreal through New Hampshire. And they wanted to introduce people to this new wonderful mode of, of transportation. Uh, and, and so they actually paid the players, the, the, the members of the crew teams, they paid them to go up to Winnipesaukee and, and do this. Uh, and they promoted their railroad by doing it. Um, and, in 1861, the U.S. government passed the, the, the Morrill Acts that established that gave established the funding for land grant colleges around the United States, and that's what produced the Michigan States, the Ohio States, the Tennessee University system, and and all across the country, um, state universities started to be created. Now, this is in the 1860s, the 1870s, when it was really only the upper crust. Of, of the US population that went to college. So there are a lot of births or a lot of places now being created for college education, uh, but there weren't the people available to, to fill those spots uh, or to have the money to be able to, to send their kids uh, to those schools. And so schools had to start competing with each other to attract, attract the a student body and fill their beds. Um, and one of the ways they decided to do that was through promoting college sports. And it, it, migrated, from, it migrated from rowing to football or be, between 1850 and 1870, 1875. Um, but there was some success with that, that. And colleges were starting to present themselves uh, as, as places not only for education, but as places that you can have fun and, and either root for or play on the football team or whatever. Uh, and and it, it just grew from there. Uh, once colleges decided they wanted to uh, promote their schools by, by playing football um, against other colleges, uh, they also discovered that, gee, you could promote your school even better if you win the games uh, and, and if you win national championships. And so they started going out and recruiting ringers who uh, it was much worse back then. I mean, they didn't even enroll in the school. They just got paid to play for the team um, under the table. Uh, and it developed from there. So the, the commercialization is something that has been uh, deeply embedded in, in, and now in endemic to, to college sports going, going back to the 19th century. Um, there were, along the way, there were certain developments such as the 1984 Supreme Court decision that I alluded to that certainly exacerbated or reinforced the patterns that were there. It's, it's, it's not going to be, it has deep, it has deep roots it's not going to be an easy thing to uproot or, or to change. Andy, one of the things that, uh, that I've been focusing a lot in my own work is not only how do you create the public awareness about the things you've talked about, but getting people to the point where they see and want change and obviously self-interest plays into this. And one of the toeholds potentially is the fact at public schools, uh, I think the general public, I know the general public doesn't realize that whether or not they're sports fans generally, or whether or not they support a particular school, they are paying through their taxes for these athletic programs. Uh, in Michigan, for example, the, I, I don't know if I'd use the word lucky, but the way in which it works out, University of Michigan and Michigan State are generally self-supporting programs. But the other major schools in the state, Central Michigan, Western Michigan, Oakland University, and Eastern Michigan are not. And as you well know, the USA Today looks at the numbers from the public institutions across the country. Uh, and I've looked at those numbers too and found that there are a variety of states, Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Virginia, California, are just a few. Uh, just at Central Michigan alone, in fact, I have the numbers here. Um, I can pull it up. No, you see, here we go. There we go. Uh, that in the most recent data uh, that USA Today collected, 55 million uh, in the Central Michigan University athletic budget didn't come from athletic sources. It came from the University General Fund and from student fees. And that 55 million accounted for 85% of the athletic department's uh, budget. So when, when you look in Michigan just alone and add up annually uh, those subsidies uh, from student funds, uh, student fees, and from the general fund, 
it adds up to almost three quarters of a billion dollars over a decade. Um, on the other hand, I know again, your emphasis, and I think rightfully so, is on congressional activity. Long way, of ask, long way of answering this question. Do you think there's any hope at all uh, to get the general public not only to understand this, but to begin to say, we need to change this. This is not the best way to use our tax dollars. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, uh, look, the, the amount of money that's being spent in the Higher Education Act federally, it's a lot of money, it's $200 billion almost annually. But you, if, you, if you stack that up against the entirety of, of the federal budget uh, spending, it's, it's, really quite, it's really quite small. Um, what, what is very true is that college tuition has been growing well above the rate of inflation. Um, typical school these days, not for in-state state schools, but private schools, uh, you're, you're paying tuition room and board uh, and books somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 or $80,000. Uh, the vast majority of the U.S. population can't afford uh, that kind of an expense. And when, when you add onto that picture, as you suggest, uh, the presence of student athletic fees, which can run one or two thousand uh, dollars at a typical university, um, then, then people, I think, as they begin to realize that, and, and I think that information is coming out uh, much, much more readily than it has in the past, people begin to realize that. I, I think you'll, you'll, you'll see more, more, more protests. Um, now, it, it, the, the problem with solving this problem at the state level is that the, the state legislatures uh, and state politicians pretty much have bought into the desirability of having competitive teams and successful teams from their state. Um, and if, if, if they were to, if, if you know, a, a, a state legislator from a particular district would, would vote against uh, an ongoing subsidy to Central Michigan or Eastern Michigan universities, um, they might see that as problematic for their political futures. And, and so they'll, they'll, shy, they'll shy away from that. Um, I, I think it, uh, if, if, if you stay at the state level in trying to solve this, you're gonna find some states maybe will cut back uh, and they'll have, they'll have uh, less athletic success. Uh, and it, that's basically telling, telling your schools that you're opting out of the rat race. And that's what Hutchinson's did, Hutchins did with the University of Chicago in 1938. Uh, it's, it's possible that could happen. I, I think it's unlikely. Uh, schools wanna have successful athletic teams. For some reason, that's, uh, that, that seems to be part and parcel of, of our culture. So I look to the US Congress as, as a potential uh, avenue for, for switching things around a little bit. Uh, I have been consulting with uh, various members of Congress and their staffs around, around bills connected to NIL and, and other, other bills connected to other aspects of, of college sports. There's a great deal of interest in that. Uh, there's, there's some crossing of the aisle even for many of these bills. Um, the main problem I think at this point is, uh, is, is not partisanship uh, for, for an athletic bill, uh, but it's everything else that's going on in our country that is, mm -hmm. is taking higher priority. Um, but I'm hopeful that, um, that we can get something done in, with, with, to start with some productive and constructive bills in, in this coming, uh, coming session starting in 2022. Yeah, I'm glad you took that approach because I think you're spot on. You know, our identities are so connected to our universities. And when you look also at the schools that aren't in that aren't in that upper tier, but wanna be, the wannabes, uh, for many of them, their athletic program is the primary way in which uh, they generate public awareness. It's not through their academics, uh, mm -hmm. it's through their athletics. So you take a look at a school like James Madison, for example, uh, in Virginia that has been very successful at a, at a bowl uh, championship level now seeking to move uh, bowl championship level to move to a bowl um, uh, football championship to a football bowl status. Um, yeah. That's an important way for them to get on the map, so to speak. That's I'm very mindful of time. Yeah, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. That's what they think. 
Yeah. Yeah. So at least that's what that's what some administrators are, are telling them to think. Exactly. Or or boards of trustees. Uh, I'm 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 not at all convinced that that's a productive way to get on so-called get on the map. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm mindful of time. Um, this has been terrific. Why don't we have one round of final uh, questions, if you have them, and then we'll uh, we'll have closing comments and then bid the audience uh, adieu. Uh, Steve, do you uh, have a final question you want to ask? Sure, I, I do. Uh, it's something uh, that really plays on um, uh, the 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 athletics arguments about the uh, merit uh, to to their programs is that they draw in a lot of uh, uh, students whenever they have a successful year or they have a successful team. So if the university and the community invest in that program, uh, they can actually improve the university's outcomes financially. Uh, I just wonder what your take on that argument is. Yeah, so that's a good question. Thanks for asking it. Um, uh, so many people will look at the, the data that I presented here today and say, okay, so there's a financial deficit um, uh, in, in terms of the bottom line. But so what they say, what you're not including is number one, that when we're successful on the football field, we get more applications. Mm -hmm. And if we get more applications, we can fill more of our beds or we can become more selective and we get a better student body. Um, so that's, that's one argument that's often made. Another argument that's often made is when we're successful, our donors will give us more money. Uh, and, even, and the state legislature itself might give us more money. <clears throat> so what's the story with that? There's been a lot of scholarship on both of those questions. Um, the, the question about about um, it, it pushing it pushing applications, what we what we generally have found is that certain kinds of, of athletic success, men's football, men's basketball, um, in particular, when when it's extraordinary success, not just you know the the record last year was was uh, twenty five and fifteen, and this year it's twenty seven and thirteen, mm -hmm. uh, not not sort of an incremental change, but. Uh, if if they if they go from uh, obscurity to uh, to fame, uh, you know, be, being never never in the in the final 64, but now now they've got all the way to the final 16 or the Sweet 16, whatever. Right. If you, when you have that sort of success, you do get more applications. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the applications that you get are at the bottom of the academic pile in terms of achievement levels. Uh, and so you can't, you don't, you don't improve the quality of your student body, uh, but you might be able to fill a few additional beds for certain kinds of, of, of athletic success. Now, keep in mind, however, uh, that if, if there is a statistical correlation between um, uh, athletic success and, and applications, um, that it goes in both directions. So it means more success means more applications, but then it also means less success means less applications. Um, so so that will that will tend to to cut both ways. Uh, you mm -hmm. could also look at it in terms of yields. The data there is not is not as as clear as it is with with applications. In terms of uh, contributions, um, donations to the program, uh, there the 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 data is uh, much more uneven. Uh, they're depending on the years you look at and the school, schools, schools you look at um, and, and the type of athletic success. Some researchers find that there is a relationship there. Um, I, I, the, the work that I've done and the work that many others have done suggests that there isn't such a relationship there. Mm -hmm. and one, of, one of the chapters in, in the book, my new book that, that Frank alluded to, is, goes into all of the gory details and wonky details. Of, of that empirical work. Excellent, appreciate that. Ruben? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for your comments. Uh, I'm thinking, getting back to the question regarding taxes that uh, Frank raised, uh, it seems that wherever there are tax-based uh, racial transfers that you talked about, it seems that what we have is government supporting racial uh, dynamics. Uh, going on there in, in, in our uh, uh, collegiate sports. Uh, but what I really wanted to ask you is, 
you talked a little bit earlier about you know the different components of what universities needed to do to really restore the student athlete role from admissions all the way through uh, helping them graduate and so on. Uh, are there examples of universities that are doing good stuff in this arena that are top tier institutions? And what are the components? We don't necessarily need to mention these the institutions, but what are the components that they're uh, uh, implementing that is really working for these students? So I'm not sure I, I understood you, Ruben. Um, you're, you're saying which which schools stand out in terms of ma maintaining proper academic support programs for student athletes? Yes. Well, one, one school that st stands out, and I, I don't know that we can learn very much from it, its experience, but to me, the school that stands out is Stanford. Mm. Um, you know, and... and <laughs> The thing about Stanford is that it has a superlative and, and well-deserved academic reputation. It has an absolutely gorgeous campus. It's got an endowment through the roof um, and it's, uh, it's in the Pac-10 or what they call the Pac-12 now, sorry. <clears throat> um, and so it's, it's managed to have a prominent, prominent uh, uh, athletics program all of these years. And so, because it has all of those starting characteristics, many of the strong high school athletes who are also strong students will gravitate to Stanford. And they can they can gravitate to the Ivy League schools, but the Ivy League schools don't have the same level of, of, of athletic competitive excellence, uh, and they don't have athletic scholarships anyway, uh, at least not scholarships that are called athletic scholarships, but Stanford does. And so Stanford, is in a situation where they've got all the resources and they'll get all the best applicants who are both great athletes and great students from around the country. So you look at Stanford and you say, my gosh, why don't we, why don't we all do it that way? Well, the problem is that we, not all schools have the money that Stanford has and has have the history and the reputation and the real estate uh, that Stanford has. So I, I don't know that there are any simple solutions. I, as a general proposition, I think that the, the Ivy League schools the Ivy, and by the way, the Ivy League school started as an athletic conference. That's where the, the term, the aggrupation of the Ivy League schools comes from, is their decision to have a, a, an athletic conference. But their decision not to stay in, in, in FBS, to go to F, FCS, and also to do it, uh, have, a, have their athletic programs not give athletic scholarships, um, that's, that's decommercializing. It, and they have not invested in fancy new stadiums. They still have the stadiums that were, were built in, in the beginning of the 19th, 19th century, uh, excuse me, beginning of the 20th century, in the early 1900s. Um, so I, I, rather, I rather like the way the Ivy League schools have done. And then, then of course you have division three schools. You have schools like my school, Smith College, where I think athletics is doing what it's supposed to do. Um, it, it doesn't take an inordinate amount of student time. It doesn't prevent students from majoring in what they want to major in or taking the courses they want to uh, take courses in. It doesn't have a special admissions program for the student athletes. It, what it does is it rounds out, it complements their, their educational process and it creates a social environment that, uh, and a community for the involved students that's very uh, auspicious, I think. Uh, so I think there are a lot of schools, certainly at Division Three, that that are doing it the right way. And uh, if if you want to look for a model, I, I think generally look at Division Three. But it's going to be hard because you have you have to opt out of the rat race to to do that. Yeah, and I think in the the, the major college scene, the non-revenue, the non-commercialized sports, you see that being closer, I think, Ruben, to what you're talking about. It is the, the commercialization of college sports, uh, football and men's basketball, and increasingly women's basketball that has really changed this landscape. But if you look on the same campuses and you look at swimming and diving, you look at other programs, um, it's more like what we're really talking about here or what we prefer. The, the irony of it is, as we all know, is when COVID hit and athletic budgets started to be pressed, uh, schools around the country cut non-revenue sports claiming financial yeah. reasons, which essentially what it boils down to is that men's football, uh, football and men's basketball essentially is taking up most of the air in the room. And right. so as a consequence, you, you privilege that 
particular domain. And that really has an administrative um, set of implications because athletic directors today, for the most part, need to have skills and focus on those commercialized sports. That's where the fans are. That's where the money is. That's what people are watching on the networks, the conference networks on ESPN. They're not watching women's volleyball. They're not watching other uh, non-revenue sports. So it becomes, going back to what Andy said, it's very complicated. But what's interesting about this is that I always look back to Walter Byers, who was the executive director of the NCAA, and really the person who says, I got this all started. He, under his watch, the term student athlete was born. Um, and he wrote, his autobiography is entitled Unsportsmanlike Conduct. Uh, he went to his grave, ruining the day that he had started something and sort of got, he never expected it to evolve the way it did. And as Andy said earlier, that's the key word here. It has evolved and it's just feeding on itself uh, in a phenomenal way. Uh, any final comments, Steve, Ruben? We'll give uh, Andy the, the final word, but uh, Steve and, and Ruben, do you want to make any final observations? Oh, I, I greatly appreciate you uh, spending time with us today and talking about this. Uh, I think it's very timely. It's a very important topic to, uh, to consider, and it's only getting more prevalent over time. So uh, thanks for looking into this and, and sharing your thoughts with us. My pleasure. Andrew, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. I know that uh, uh, our viewers will appreciate you doing this. Y quiero que sepas que siempre serás bienvenido aquí at Future You. Muy amable. Muchas gracias. Ha sido un placer. That's terrific. For those of you who say, look, I want to learn more, strongly recommend Andy's books, the most recent book just out, uh, Wither College Sports. Let me also talk about uh, national organizations that are addressing the issues associated with what we talked about today. One is the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Uh, go to the website and see what they're up to. And also Andy is the president-elect of the Drake Group, a group that I also belong to. Let me describe the, great, uh, the Drake Group uh, from its website because it's very well-worded. A national network dedicated defending, to defending academic integrity in higher education, keyword here, from the corrosive aspects of commercialized college sports. Uh, final comments from you, Andy, and then we'll close the program. So I would just, since it's come up a few times, like to make one observation about coaching salaries. Um, now you, you pointed out, Frank, that with, with the pandemic, a lot of schools have been cutting the non-revenue sports, uh, and it's understandable that that would be their instinct. And many of them, by the way, had, had, were, were sued around, around that and had to, had to retract their decisions. But there's an obvious way to deal with, with financial pressures, not just the pandemic pressures, but the deficits that I spoke about. Uh, and that is to have some price controls introduced. And you, you, you have to have some antitrust exemption privileges to do that, uh, which can be handled. And that's also being talked about in Congress. But look, what would happen? Imagine this. Let's say that Congress passed a rule that said, or a law that said, you can't pay coaches, head coaches and College, college sports teams, you can't pay them more than you pay the highest paid full professor at your school. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's say for argument's sake, let's say that's $300,000. I know it's higher at some schools, but let's use that number $300,000. So Nick Saban, instead of getting paid $11 million a year to coach the Alabama football team, by national legislation could only be paid $300,000. What would Nick Saban do? What would he do? What, is he, what else is he qualified to do? Uh, that that $300,000 offer is still probably going to be the best thing that he can do. Now, maybe he'll try to go back to the pros, but we've seen time and time again that if you're successful in college, it doesn't mean you're successful in the pros. And if Saban did go to the pros, he would replace or displace some NFL coach who would then become available to the college coaching system. Uh, in other words, if we had legislation that that put price controls on these outrageous salaries that, that the coaches are getting and the ADs and the conference commissioners, there wouldn't be change in the allocation of resources. And the, the level of competition on the playing field wouldn't change. Uh, and the level of, of uh, success or the level of enjoyment that fans would have by watching the games wouldn't change. 
and so we could save the average program in, in FBS over $10 million. Uh, so the, it, rather than looking at the deficits or looking at the pandemic and say, oh, let's slice the non-revenue teams, let's cut them out. Let's look at where, where the, what, what, what the real waste is and what the real fat is in the system. Mm -hmm. this, this, is, this is a resolvable uh, issue. It just needs some concerted attention. Yeah, well stated. You know, when you think about it from a sort of a public point of view, the public knows the concept caps. They, they know there are caps in pro sports. Uh, and, uh, and many of them, many fans become quite knowledgeable about what's possible, what's not possible on the player side, uh, how much cap space there is, so to speak. That's a well-known concept. But uh, as we were talking before the program started, the NCAA is a membership organization. And so they're going to serve the members. And so what you've just described, Andy, makes a lot of sense. You got to turn to Congress. And if uh, an industry, and that's what it is, can't regulate itself, and seeks not to do that, then you turn to regulation. That's controversial, I know, but when you think about it from a coaching side and also on a facility side to cap, you know, how far do you go? But I think your point is, is spot on, very much spot on. Thank you so much for being here today. Very invigorating, important conversation. Thank you, Ruben and Steve, for being here as well. And thank all of you for watching. I hope it, uh, you know now a lot more, and I'm sure you do than you did before about this su subject, that you'll pursue more information. And then maybe the most important thing of all, the question is, what do you do with it? Change is really important, and you can be part of it. So for future you, I'm Frank Fear. Thank you very much. Take care now.